everyone, and welcome to Focus Forward, an executive function podcast where we explore the challenges and celebrate the wins you'll experience as you change your life through working on improving your executive function skills. I'm your host, Hannah Choi. When we talk about executive function, we also need to talk about mental health. Taking care of our mental health is really important for everyone, and studies show that there is a connection between executive function challenges and mental health diagnoses like depression and anxiety. There are many, many ways that executive function challenges affect mental health and vice versa, and in today's episode, I'll explore just two of these, emotional regulation for kids and the impact that ADHD can have on kids' mental health. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with two guests to talk about these interesting topics. Sherry Flatervish joined me from Chicago, and Sean Potts joined me from Brooklyn, New York. Sherry is a child and family therapist who works with infants through adults and also supports the parents and families of these children. She is trained in many therapeutic areas, including TheraPlay, Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, Mindfulness, Santray, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Her areas of expertise include anxiety, depression, ADHD, parent support, and family transition divorce and separation support, trauma, attachment issues, and social skills. And Sean is one of Beyond Booksmart's earliest coaching clients. And now as an adult, Sean has developed a passion for raising awareness around ADHD and is especially interested in the increased risk for mental health disorders and the societal stigma associated with ADHD. He uses that passion every day as a driving force in the work he does as Beyond Booksmart's marketing specialist. And it's the reason why I thought he'd be a great fit for today's topic. I also need to mention that Sean is my partner in crime for this podcast. He does all the editing and all the sound, which is good since I can't stand that kind of stuff. So without him, this podcast would not exist. Thanks, Sean. Okay, so keep listening to hear my conversation with Sherry and Sean and learn some great strategies to support both our own emotional regulation and that of our kids and to hear how ADHD impacts the mental health of students and how we can help support kiddos with ADHD. Okay, now on to the show. So today I would love to talk about um, two topics that are really, really important to me as a coach and also to, I think, everyone. The first is emotional regulation, and that's how we manage our emotions. And Emotional regulation can be challenging for everybody, and it is especially challenging for kids because they don't have a lot of experience yet. Their executive functions are not completely developed yet, and they just haven't had a lot of opportunities to practice emotional regulation. Um, so I'd love to talk about some um, you know, ideas that you have, Sherry, from your perspective. And, um, and then I would love to cover the idea of the connection between Um, executive function and mental health, uh, because we see that a lot, that there's a a lot of challenges by people who have executive function challenges often go have some also some mental health challenges along with them. So if we could um, cover those two topics today, that would be fabulous. Absolutely. You know, something that I talk about in every single family session, every child session intake is just emotion regulation. You know, a lot of times I see, I start my intakes with parents and they come in and they tell me what's been going on. And oftentimes I hear, you know, these behaviors are showing up and these labels and these things that kids are experiencing. And my mind immediately goes to regulation and where are they at in their, in their ability to do that and in their ability to regulate. And then the parents' ability to like help them co-regulate too, which is something I talk about a lot. Um, all of that comes from a deeper, lower part of our brains that takes so much time and years and experiences and everything to start to build. Um, and so that's that's oftentimes, regulation is oftentimes the first place that I really start with, with families. And I feel like so many of us, at least in the generation that is old enough to have kids and then, then the generation before us, there wasn't a lot of education about um, about self-regulation, emotional regulation, and especially co-regulation. I think maybe even a lot of our listeners don't know what co-regulation is. Would you like to explain that a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. So what I often say is that we are sharing our nervous systems, especially with our children. And when they're little and they're babies, we're really doing everything for them. We're rocking them to regulate them. Even when they're in our bellies, we're rocking them, we're regulating them. And then we're feeding them, we're watering them, we're doing all of those things for them. And then as children get older, we start to help them use, build their own ability to regulate themselves. But, you know, even we're even co-regulating with, with our high schoolers too, you know, instead of maybe before you would pack their lunch for them, but, you know, now you're just putting things in the right spot in, in the, uh, in the fridge for them instead. And so all those little pieces are, you're helping them regulate, you know, instead of maybe holding them, you're just sitting next to them while they do their homework now, instead of really being there. But it really is just sharing your nervous system and sharing your regulation with your child. And I'm also always, you know, talking about how different energy states require a different type of regulation. So if you have a child who's really upset and sad, you can mirror that with your body. You can get lower with them and you can talk to them at a lower level and put your hand on your, on their shoulder. But if you have a child that's really angry and frustrated, my brother just ripped apart my favorite stuffed animal. And, you know, I, I invite parents to match that same energy with their child and get bigger and meet their affect and just tell them how frustrated it is that they, that this just happened. That's co-regulating. It's showing through your body, through your voice, through your affect that I hear you, I see you. And then a child begins to be able to regulate themselves as we, as we kind of practice and learn and model that. So, so much of, um, of helping our kids is learning first for ourselves, what we need to do to help ourselves. And then through that, we can help our kids. That conversation invites a lot to understand our own systems. You know, I help parents understand what comes up for them as their child moves through different things that maybe, maybe transitions are really difficult. So I invite them to wonder, what does that feel like for you too, when that is happening? And so the first step is regulating yourself. You can't help you can't help your child. You can't help them regulate when you are in that state of dysregulation as well. So it really starts with just taking, taking a deep breath and being, you know, taking care of yourself first. And it's so hard to do that. It's so hard to, at least I personally find myself feeling like, well, that whole idea of putting your that putting the mask on the oxygen mask on first, it's so hard in the moment or just in the busyness of life. It's so hard to remember to do that. And, and that's, that's why I am always, I think anybody who knows me, well, I'm always talking about self-care and, and I think part of it is because I'm trying to remind myself like, Hannah, you have to do that too, but it's so important to, to take care of ourselves first. So that's great. I think even just hearing that it's okay to pause and put your mask on and model. That's, that's a modeling moment. You know, mom needs a break. Mom needs 10 seconds before she can figure out how to help solve this problem. That's, that's everything. And your kiddo feels like they can do that too. Um, you mentioned transitions and I know that's a really big, um, that's something that a lot of our clients, um, find challenging. And I just know kids in general, um, and even adults can find transitions challenging. Um, what, what do you suggest for parents or, or ourselves if we struggle with transitions? Do you have some kind of go-to strategies that you'd like to suggest? Transitions are so, so hard. And especially once from, we're moving from something that we're really enjoying and really liking and maybe even deregulating for us too. For example, you know, if your kid's playing video games, that is actually really regulating. And then they're we're asking them to move to homework or dinner time or whatever it might be, bedtime, that isn't so regulating for them. And so just being mindful of that piece too, when we're supporting our kids through a transition, is just how you're approaching it and your own, you know, I talk about expectations a lot, the expectations that you don't even realize you have as you're leading up to a transition, what you want it to be like. Um, even if you're expecting it to be a blow up because maybe it has been in the past. And then tying in this topic of co-regulation, 
how can you use yourself to help your kid get from A to B? Does, you know, if the video game is super regulating, can you come in and say, okay, you have five minutes left. And then as soon as you turn off, we're going to pass the ball outside. Or as soon as you turn off, we're going to go, you, you can pick up your favorite game and we're going to play it for five minutes before we move to dinner or get out of the house or whatever it is. You are offering yourself up to play and to be almost like the little uh, train to get from regulation to tasks that I don't really like so much, but just use yourself as a tool to do that. Um, and that's in the moment. And then before it's trying to set up for structure and as much as, you know, as much as you can, you have a plan for how often or how long you're going to be playing each game or doing each activity or whatever it might be so that, you know, a child feels as, as prepared as they possibly can for the next, for the next things. Transitions are so hard. They are. Um, I, I, I see just parents struggling with them on the playground after school um, when the kids are, they've, they've come out of school and they're going onto the playground to play and then it's time to go. And I often hear parents say like, oh, I don't want to tell them it's time to go because then I know what I'm going to have to deal with. So what could a parent do in a situation like that? Oh my gosh. Notice that. Notice that dread. Notice that worry. You know, where's, where's this going to go today? Are we going to get to the car? We're going to have a dragging, screaming kid to the car. Just be mindful of that. First off, take a deep breath before you're going. And then how, how can you enter that same playful state that they're in right now? They're on the playground, they're playing, they're having so much fun. And then they hear time to go right now. What if it was, Hey, this seems like such a fun game of tag. Can you go and tag whoever it is that's next? And then we're going to head out. It's, you enter, you join in the play, you join in, even if it's for a minute, I bet that that minute ends up being more worth it than the potential 10 minutes or the potential screening, you know, just join in, notice what they're playing and then kind of come out together to the car. That's so smart. So it seems like co-regulation is, I mean, it probably doesn't work every time I imagine, but it, it, it sounds like it's a, a great strategy to practice a lot. And yeah. it, it might not, you might get, I don't want to, I don't want to go. This is too much fun. I don't want to leave. You can still co right. You can say, yes, I know you're having so much fun and you don't want to go to piano. You think piano sucks. And this is so much more fun. That's still, you're still entering in. You're still like meeting them for that really frustration, but we do have to go. So I, I'm, I want to help you. I want to problem solve right now. How to make this easier. So Sherry, that that makes me think of this idea that we should just stay calm, you know, and so that kind of makes me think maybe we shouldn't just stay calm. Maybe we, like you said, we need to meet them where they are. And it feels a little strange for me to think, oh, wow, okay, yeah, to get angry with them. But, but then it really shows them that we understand where they are. I hear this so often. It's, I'm, I'm, I tried to stay so calm. I stay so calm. I you know, I'm as, as calm as I can with my voice and all of these pieces. And that's incredible if you can, if you can be there, but that idea of mirroring your child's emotion, emotional state, it's okay to not be cool as a cucumber, you know, because if you hear a child who's saying, you know, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so sad and I'm so bumped out or I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated, kind of like what we said earlier, it's, it's okay to meet them with that, with that same emotion. It shows mom and dad or whoever feels can feel that way too. So. I remember my mom, when I first started working with kids as a teenager, my mom gave me some advice and she said, when a kid is upset or just won't stop talking to you, just say back to them what they have said to you just repeat back to them what they've just said to you. And, and it's, and they, they just sometimes just want to be heard. So this idea of, co it's almost like this idea of co-regulation, like 
they you are acknowledging their feelings. You're not um, you're telling them through your behavior that these feelings are okay. Yeah. Is that would you say that's an accurate Absolutely. description? I, of that? I love that. I love that advice so much because it just shows a child. It shows your child that it's it is okay to have all of these feelings. And later on, you know, addressing the behaviors and the way that you express them, that's, that's a different story, but you, you're modeling that it's okay to have, have all of those different emotions and they're welcome here too. Yeah, great. Thanks, mom. <laughs> One time I was in a store and there was this little boy and he he was probably three or four. And he kept saying, he was with his grandparents and he kept saying over and over and over again, um, like, I want mommy, I want mommy. And they were, they were, yeah, 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 yeah. You'll see her later. Um, mommy's busy or whatever. And I want mommy. He kept saying it. And I went up to him and I said, you want your mommy? He said, yeah. And then he stopped yelling about it. See, you just need to say it back to him. You just want someone to acknowledge that. It's, sometimes we we just we miss that piece, and 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 it's it almost out of the moment. It seems so simple, or from from that from the observer, you saw that you're like that kid just wants his mom. You just want your mom so bad. You're so you just miss her, you know. And yeah. it snapped him right right back into right back into it. It's like whoa, this adult just heard me. <laughs> but I guess it shows that when you are the parent or the caregiver in the moment, it's hard to to step out and say and and like look at it like an observer, look at it like that crazy lady who just talked to my grandkid. <laughs> so yeah. it's a lot easier not in the moment <laughs> to do that. Yeah. So do you have any strategies for when you are in the moment and it's hard and you're having trouble getting out of it as a, as as an adult? And the first step, it's just, it's noticing and maybe taking a step back and maybe even getting lower, getting on your child's level. And just, even if, if it just means, you know, just looking at them in the eye and saying, you're just, you know, um, you're so worried about, you know, the test that you have tomorrow at school. If your kid just won't stop talking about it, I have to study, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to prepare this way. And my, my advice is, is not so much to focus on the behavior, but to focus on the emotion underneath of what your child is saying and just get curious with them. They might not be able to tell you how they feel, but they're communicating through even that little boy in the grocery store was probably feeling worried or missing or just wanted, wanted his mom. And that's an opportunity for us to say and wonder, I wonder if you're feeling worried right now. You don't know where mommy is or I wonder if you're just nervous for your test tomorrow. We can pull the emotion out of the, the over and over and over talk that we hear. Notice maybe what it's bringing up for you. That might be the same feeling that your kid's feeling and isn't able to communicate it. Um, being able to label your emotions is so important. And I feel like, and I think that is a skill that, goes along with emotion, with executive function and um, just sort of that emotional awareness. And, and that's a big part of emotional regulation is labeling your emotions. Um, do you have any strategies for all ages, for little kids up to adults, for um, helping to figure out what you're feeling or maybe helping someone else to figure out what they're feeling? Because I imagine a lot of our coaches might need to help their clients figure out what they're feeling. And maybe the client doesn't know what they're feeling and they're hoping to figure that out. So. I always say as the, whether you are the, the, whatever adult you are that's in that child's life or that teenager's life, it's, it's okay to guess and it's okay to guess wrong. You know, if you're noticing that a child is, is something just changed, you can just say, oh, I just noticed something changed. You know, what happened for you? What's going on right now? And it might not come out as a feeling. It might be, I'm thinking this, or um, you, can, you can still use that to be curious about the moment. And if they can't connect to what they're, what they're feeling, then maybe you can help them connect with what's going on in their body. And I invite all ages, clients of all ages to do that. And if they can't express to me what they're feeling, then I ask them to just draw it. You know, can you pick a color? Can you 
draw what that, what that feeling feels like in your body? Can you identify it somewhere inside of your body right now or where that change just happened? It doesn't have to be through communication, through, through verbal. We can find other outlets and maybe it's just a quick journal for a teenager or for us to just, and I don't really know what's going on, but I'm just going to write for a minute and see what kind of comes out. So something that that comes up a lot for um, for us as coaches, and I think just us as humans, and is what I talked about in our first episode, is this idea of failure, and um, I the emotions that go along with that, and how um, I think uh, with for people with executive function challenges, we you know people can often feel like failures, and there's a lot of emotions there and anxiety that might come up and do you um do you have any what's your insight on that like the connection between um between executive function and feelings emotions to to follow up on the conversation about failure that you bring up is just how I, I loved the first episode that you released when you were talking about failure because it is an it is a learning opportunity, but in the moment it sure doesn't feel that way. You know, it feels really, really, really bad. And we have our own self-beliefs that show up and start spiraling. And then we have all the messages that we've heard. You know, and if you're a kiddo or a teenager struggling with some executive functions as well then at school, you're probably oftentimes getting redirected and reminded and something wrong. And it's really hard not to internalize all of that and end up with these negative thoughts about ourselves kind of swirling. Well, I was just going to ask Sean if he was comfortable sharing your own experience growing up. I know that you um, can relate personally to some of what Sherry was just saying. If you wanted to share any of your experience? Yeah, I I grew up most of my life not really knowing I had, had ADHD. It was one of those things where I, you know, would never really love going to school. It was very hard for me to sit still. Uh, it was very hard for me to like have that sort of rigid structured time. Uh, and that, you know, there was definitely a lot of friction that happens when I was younger around that, uh, you know, and my parents noticed it at a, a fairly young age. And that led to me getting a, my first ADHD diagnosis test when I was probably in fourth grade. Uh, and for whatever reason, I didn't get diagnosed at that time. Um, so the, the problems continued to get worse until about halfway through middle school when it was just sort of uh, kind of hard to ignore the level of executive dysfunction that I was experiencing. I mean, I was a CD student and I, you know, could never sit still. I was, you know, constantly getting kicked out of the classroom for whatever annoyance my 12 year old self was contributing to the classroom and distracting from learning. Uh, so I eventually at that age was able to get diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, and that was sort of the beginning of my journey to treating it. I mean, of course, getting that diagnosis is huge. So from there, uh, very soon after, you know, we started doing trials with medication, uh, and also, I mean, that was a big component, but the biggest for me was definitely the executive function coaching I got. I started working with a coach when I was at this point about 13, 14, uh, you know, it took a little while, probably a year after my diagnosis before I really got moving forward with coaching. Uh, and for me, the transformation that happened was just like, was unbelievable. Uh, you know, within six months, I would say of coaching, I was almost a completely different student. I was, I was getting A's, which was the first time in my life. And, you know, I, I there was no C's to be found on my report card, but more importantly, I rebuilt this confidence that I, I felt like I had lost from my years of going to school with untreated ADHD and just feeling like I was so different. Uh, that was huge. All of a sudden I was like, teachers were complimenting me and I was, uh, you know, like the, my parents didn't have to nag me about homework and I was feeling really confident um, in my abilities. And it was a big revelation. And I think that confidence was sort of the, the boost I needed moving forward. And now looking back, it's been what over 10 years since I had started coaching at this point, I I'm 25 and the, you know, I still am so grateful for the experience I had then, but I, I also recognize a lot of the problems that I had 
are not isolated incidents that I only experience. I mean, people all over the world have untreated ADHD and the consequences of that can be really substantial, um, both on their mental health, their sense of self um, and their you know future prospects. So I'm have become very passionate about that. It's why I also love my job now working as Beyond Booksmart's marketing specialist, where I'm able to educate and spread awareness and advocate for a lot of the stuff that I struggled with and so many other people struggle with. So it's really cool to, to be here and talking to both of you about this. It's, it's really, it's kind of an amazing uh, full circle to, to be here and be able to talk about it in the way that I am. Oh, that's, that's a really important piece to bring up. And I appreciate you sharing a little bit about, you know, that diagnosis coming a little bit later in adolescence too, and what that must be like to experience or go through all of those years of school and not really understand what's different about how your brain works and what your brain needs until later on. And when we tie in mental health and what we know about regulation as well is that we can't really access those thinking, decision-making parts of our brains when we're not emotionally regulated. And so mental health, and if we're struggling with even if it's just stress or anxiety or depression or whatever it might be, our whole, we aren't able to plan and organize and our memories impacted and all of those pieces that we need to be successful are, it just makes it harder to do that, to get there. And I imagine if you have grown up with this continuous message that you're hearing over and over and over again, that you're a failure. I mean, that maybe that's not the words they're using, but that's might be the message you're receiving. I imagine that that causes an amazing amount of stress on the brain and then makes it even more challenging to access the executive function skills that, that are already challenging. Absolutely. Hannah. Yeah. You, it's, you know, those beliefs and your own uh, perception of your own abilities and can lead to some of those thoughts. And then that I, I can imagine how then having those feelings and maybe leading to that, even leading to avoidance or anxiety and not wanting to go to school or not wanting to um, go certain places where maybe those feelings have come up in the past and all of those things kind of becoming comorbid and leading to each other. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's totally true. And I think um, from my own experience and from the research that's been done, I think there was something that said that by the time someone with ADHD turns 10, they've heard, I think, 10,000 more corrective messages than their neurotypical peers, uh, which is, I find very sad because that has a, a big ripple effect that impacts someone with ADHD's perception of themselves, first and foremost. Uh but also of their capacity to, to do things and their confidence. And that, again, it has a ripple effect later in life that really impacts your mental health, uh, your sense of self, your, again, your confidence. And I find that to be one of the saddest things about untreated ADHD is the fact that there's this coexisting mental health risk that people with ADHD also have. This leads me to my first real question, which is um, for you, Sherry, and it's that I'm, I'm very interested from the work that you've done, how you've seen uh, some of the impact that that type of corrective messaging or other challenges that people with ADHD have, how that's manifested into mental health challenges and the clients that you work with. I uh, would love to hear anything you have to say uh, on that subject. Absolutely. I'm just, I'm thinking about the first thing that comes to my mind is this environment. The environment of school and what is expected of students and how if you're not fitting in maybe because of your ADHD diagnosis executive functioning challenges you're not fitting in with what is expected and where I start oftentimes I do collaborate with schools and I'll kind of talk about how I do that with my clients but it's first starting with with my clients and with their families and recognizing that maybe these pieces of the environment actually aren't working with me or for my brain or for how I need it. And so not necessarily adapting yourself in that moment, but I'm, I'm more wondering how can the teachers support this need that you have and how can we adjust this expectation to fit in with what you, what you need and talking with teachers and maybe even providing some of that education too about how 
oftentimes these students are experiencing redirections and how can we help them without constantly correcting, correcting their behaviors instead. Working with teachers has been really, really validating for, for all the families and the clients that I work with because just knowing, just a student going into school, knowing that my teacher gets it, you know, she knows that I'm not trying to misbehave or trying to be a bad kid or whatever it is that had been coming up in the past is, is not the case and knows that, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying with the best that I can. Have you noticed an increase in opportunities to work with teachers? Like are, is there more of a, um, are, are educators becoming more aware of kind of like a holistic approach to teaching? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I really, really appreciate all of the teachers that, I, that I'm able to collaborate with and that they're able to take the time to speak with me for, you know, 15, 20 minutes about one of their 30 students. And there is so much more social emotional learning going on in the classroom these days. It's truly incredible. And then that insight is so helpful for therapy. I use everything that the teachers are giving me, all those observations and bringing them into the room. And then like on, on the flip side as well, I feel that teachers are craving this piece and needing it and wanting to know what works best for each student. And they're so willing to implement it because that's all they want is the success of their students. And then unfortunately, a lot of times it's, you know, what are you, you're not supporting my kid. You're not doing what they need. And and teachers are self-internalizing too. Like, I can't connect with this kid. And this is so hard where, you know, I, I try so hard to just let teachers know you're doing the best that you can. And it's not, you know, some kids have different needs and how how open they are to having those vulnerable conversations is something I'm really grateful for. And I imagine that there's also, it also varies from school depending on the, you know, the, the leadership and how um, aware the leadership is of, of the importance of social and emotional regulation and just how important that piece is. I was just talking recently with our, my, my children's elementary school principal and, and she was saying that, that for her, that's number one, that's that comes first and the happiness of her teachers, you know, is just so important in that she sees mental health as the most important thing first for everybody. I love, I just loved hearing that. And, and that that's, so that's great that you're seeing a lot of partnership between schools and mental health providers. Yeah, that's a great point, Hannah. Uh, and Sherry, I'm just curious. I, I just have a quick question for you too. Uh, do you find in the work that you do that teachers have become more aware or perceptive to this to these issues around ADHD and executive function than they were, let's say, 10 years ago? Because from my experience growing up, it really felt like almost to no fault of their own, teachers just didn't really know about these challenges. They didn't really know how to handle them. And because of that, oftentimes, you know, that would manifest into frustration or other areas like that. And I'm just, I'm just curious if you think that's changed at all in the last 10 years uh, in the work that you've been doing. I think, you know, to Hannah's point, it definitely depends on the administration and the, the higher ups and, and what that, you know, the different environments and of, of each school as well. But overall, I definitely see teachers more invested on that mental health and emotional piece. I think because there's so much more education out there on it, the stigma is decreasing and so many more people are open to therapy and there isn't this huge, uh, you know, stigma on it for lack of better words, that it seeps into education and it seeps into uh, the teachers as well. You know, they are recognizing that they have their own things going on too. Then it's so much easier to see and to connect with students who are also experiencing that. And so I think overall just, it's, it's a lot easier to have those conversations and teachers are really willing to go there. And, and breaking down that stigma around mental health and therapists and, you know, taking care of our mental health is so important. And 
and why continuing to have these conversations and normalizing the idea of having a therapist, normalizing the idea of, yes, everyone has executive function challenges. Like I am the first one to admit, yeah, I'm a coach and I love helping people. And I also really struggle with in certain areas of executive function. And, um, you, and just, just having these conversations and showing people you can talk about it and it's okay. And talking about it is going to help. It will help. It'll help someone. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great to hear that that conversation is happening more. And sometimes even just talking to teachers on that note of acknowledging your own challenges with whatever, whatever it might be, you know, that is such a great way to connect with your kid, you know, or your students, whoever it might be that, you know, I have a really hard time organizing my stuff too. Here's something that has helped me or let's problem solve together. Let's, let's work through this. Let's figure out how to do it. Um, just that little piece, that little nugget, I'll have kids come in and just tell me that they had this great talk with their teacher and the teacher might not have even noticed, but it was just this little piece, little thing that they connected on. You know, I felt this way before. That's everything. It can be everything. I see that a lot in my clients. Whenever I, you know, if I share something that I've really struggled with, I see like visible relief on their face. Like, wow, this person who's supposedly, you know, obviously she knows something about executive function. Um, she has struggled with it too. And it's, yeah, it's so important to share that. Yeah. It, although it can be scary to be open about your own struggles, your own challenges, but I think it gives everyone else permission to think, oh, oh I actually feel that way too sometimes. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I've worked through that over the years as a therapist and how to self-disclose and learning how to disclose in a way that's really validating and open yep. up this place of, of comfort. And it sounds like you're working on that same thing too. And just showing, you know, I have, I have these struggles too, and I have these feelings and these eyes open up so wide. Some of these kids like, well, you know, <laughs> adults that I model also experience struggles. And it's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some, that reminds me of um, the idea. I can't remember what it's called. You probably know um, the the idea where you can feel two different, two opposing feelings about the same thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the idea of replacing but with and, um, and so that reminded me of Sean, your your experience growing up and how if you had maybe received the message um, like you know, you, you are, um, you need to work on your organization or whatever. And you're, you're a great student. Um, or you're a good, you know, you might've heard like, yeah, you're smart, but you, you know, need to work on this. And it kind of negates everything that was said first. So do you, is that a strategy that you have shared with people or is that something that's coming up for you lately? I think that when you're, when you're offering that opportunity of learning, right? That's usually what, what we're doing at the end of the day when you're offering a criticism or you're offering your observation or whatever it might be, it's an opportunity for that other person to, to learn or in your mind get better at whatever that challenge is. And so we have to sandwich those pieces with obviously things that will make them feel proud of themselves and feel accomplished. And then when you're adding in these pieces of, but you can do this next time or, but whatever it might be, you know, here's a place. Sometimes I'll say it like this, you know, your brain works really, really good at your, you have a great memory. You're very creative and you have an ability to see all these little details that everybody else may not be able to see, but your brain at, or I don't even want to say, but your brain has a little bit of a harder time with shifting attention from this to this or from whatever activity we're doing before to this one. And so maybe connecting with, with that actual piece that they're struggling with and saying, you know, I'm here with you. I want to help. I want to help you strengthen this part of your brain. I want to help this not be so hard for you. And connecting with, you know, how hard it is for them, the feeling that comes up for them, and then working together to be kind of, kind of like a consultant for them. You know, how can we problem solve together? 
And that, that makes me think of the idea of meeting someone where they are and, and not asking more of them that they are, than they're ready for and figuring out what their strengths are and how they can use those strengths. Mm-hmm. Sean, do you, do you remember, do you think, have you ever thought about that concept of like, of, of you can be this one thing and the, and the kind of opposite at the same time? And do you think that any of the messaging that you received growing up as a kid with ADHD, do you think if you had been told this message of you have challenges and or like you're this and you're that instead of you're this but you're that do you think that would have made a a difference for you oh yeah I think that would have made a huge difference uh particularly around when I was maybe nine years old I remember I just had this one teacher that just never really understood or got me beyond those surface level challenges that she saw uh and my mom often recalls this one parent teacher conference or the typical one that would happen near the end of the year where she, you know, went to the conference with my dad and, you know, for the next 20, 30 minutes that my teacher just kept listing off all these negative things I was doing wrong. Uh, and eventually she just snapped and was like, do you have anything positive to say about my son? And I think that's the best example of what it was really like for me being in the classroom every day with the teacher who saw me in that way. Um, and I remember the next year I had just such a, an upgrade where I had a teacher who uh, immediately got me and saw some things that I didn't even see in myself, particularly around writing and creativity and some things that I've since learned that I really like. And the first uh, you know, time the parents come in for the classroom, she mentioned how the first thing she said to, to my mom when she came up to her was, oh my God, your son's so creative. He's such a great writer. And my mom tells me that she just started crying because from her perspective, she had been hearing these negative things. And that was in stark contrast to what she knew about me. Uh, but it, at a deeper level, it was a stark contrast to what I felt like I knew about myself. But I it had really impacted me hearing all the, the things I had heard that year before from that one teacher and some of the ways that she approached my challenges. So, you know, I really think it would have been a huge help to have had that earlier. And I think, you know, overcoming that was a huge part of my journey with my ADHD and the executive dysfunction I was experiencing. So no, absolutely. I think that would have made a huge difference. But I also do recognize that I was lucky to have had a teacher like that. And I also recognize that there are a lot of students who don't. Uh, and that's really, really sad and unfortunate because I think anyone growing up with those types of challenges needs to needs to meet somebody who can see you as an individual beyond just those sort of those surface level challenges. Um, so that you can realize that they're really just that surface level challenges. They're not some inherent character flaws that makes you, you know, irre- irrevocably messed up or different. They're uh, a challenge that you have a whole lifetime to be able to overcome. But within that, you also have your strengths. And if you can have a teacher or somebody in your life who can help you realize that as a, someone who's young with ADHD, I think that is one of the most important uh, ingredients for future success. And I, again, I feel very lucky to have had that both in that teacher, but also in my coach. Yeah. And then what you said about confidence, I mean, that keeps coming up in every conversation that I have had, I feel like about everything recently, but especially these conversations for the podcast is it all seems to come back to confidence. And I imagine, Sherry, you see that a lot in both your clients and the parents of your clients. And that when you learn the skills, then you become more confident, which then helps in, I imagine, um, more ways than we will ever know for people. That is something that comes up in almost every intake. You know, I just, I want my kid to feel more confident and that shows up in every aspect then of of their identity. And when I bring kids into my office, that is one of the first things that I work on is where do you feel your best? Because these are not kind of to Sean's point, these are not conversations or things that kids just inherently think about, you know, where am I, where am I, where do I feel the best? Where do I feel strong? Where do I feel empowered and confident? I bet you every kid you speak to will actually have an example of it, but then, and offering your own piece if they don't, you know, well, I see how how focused you are whenever you're drawing in session 
or it seems like you're three steps ahead when we're playing connect four every single week. Those are these little pieces where you are starting to notice other, their, uh, notice their, their confidence where, when they might not even be seeing it themselves. And then using that to work towards some of the, the challenges and the pieces, the things that they want to see different in their own lives too. Even five-year-olds can tell me, I want to feel less of this feeling and more of this feeling. Like, okay, great. Well, using the things that I know where you feel confident, we're going to, we're going to build on those pieces. It, the feelings you don't want to have anymore, the challenges you are having at school. You're not just this one thing. That reminds me of a conversation I had with my family recently. Um, we went around the room and we challenged each other to come up with five things that we were really good at. We had to say it about ourselves. It was so hard. It was such a hard thing to do. Um, and I think you're right. We don't naturally think that way. And and so how great to start off um, you know, a, a conversation with someone that way. I, 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 when I meet for, when I first meet a new client, I always ask them, so what are you good at? And it's, it's hard to think that way, but it's important. Yeah. Great. Do you have any, uh, Sean, do you have any other questions for Sherry? Yeah. So for the clients that you work with that have, let's say anxiety and depression, but also have ADHD where these two, these two, or maybe even three things are existing simultaneously. How do you assess where to start treatment? Do you start with the ADHD? Do you start with the depression, anxiety? What's the, the focal point for treatment uh, and why? This, this happens often, right? Where, where a client is experiencing uh, symptoms of different diagnoses and maybe even has comorbid diagnoses already coming into, into my session. And I start by just really, really, really kind of for a moment, putting aside that diagnosis and noticing what is what is showing up the most and what is the most symptomatic and what is getting in the way most for this client. You know, if they have dual diagnoses, then maybe we need to first focus on that anxiety piece. And that is the most important. And to figure out how to calm your mind, calm your body, feel a little bit more regulated. So then you can tackle some of those, some of those pieces and those thoughts. And then we can dive into the other diagnoses or the other symptoms, you know, that the diagnosis is, is important and really validating for so many people and for me too, and it helps with treatment, but um, just kind of looking at a client and a person as a whole and parsing out what is, what is really the most important thing to, to support in the beginning and everything else will eventually fall into place. I find that too with coaching, you know, we always start off like, what's the thing that's the hardest for you right now? Like, what's the thing that's causing the most stress for you or the thing that, that you, that's keeping you up at night and just, and starting there. And you're right. I, I do find that the other things kind of end up naturally just getting involved and, and leading into them. And then, and then I do notice also that some of the challenges that came up once we address those challenges, they actually were associated with some of the other stuff too. So then it, it makes the other stuff that used to be super challenging also a little bit less challenging just by working on this one other thing. I wonder if it's that they're building on their strengths or they're starting to feel more confident in one area and it kind of just even without even that conversation happening, it's just starting to morph into those other places yeah. and other things. It's pretty magical to see. So I imagine you have that experience as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sherry. It's just so interesting to listen to you talk and, and you have such a calm um, manner about yourself. I, I bet your clients just love talking with you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> That's great. I really like this conversation. I feel like we just, I wish it happened more. I wish these conversations were out there more and uh, just kind of normalizing therapy and parenting support you know that's it's just you need the space you know and it's not just to drop off service i won't let that happen i don't let that happen in my office i make sure parents know from the beginning i don't care if you're you know kiddos coming in here five or 17 you know i i want to work together so that what's going on in my sessions is is coming and translating at home too 
um, when when my kids were little, I um, I lived on Cape Cod, and I have to give a shout out to Cindy Horgan at the Cape Cod Children's Place. It's a um, an organization that provides support for young families um, on the outer and lower Cape. And um, my kids went, or my yeah, my kids went to preschool there, and she approaches it like that when you yes you, your kids go to school there but she supports the parents so much and you could just make an appointment to go talk with her about any parenting challenge you are, you're having and she just wrapped you right up in her you know figurative arms and just kept you you know gave, gave you great strategies and 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 she was so great she was so open about her own challenges and just normalized everything so much and just what you were saying right there just reminds me so much of that experience and i wish that every every child um and every parent would have an opportunity to work with someone like Cindy Horgan <laughs> so so thanks Sherry um could you share with our listeners um where we where they can find you if they're interested in asking you more questions or learning more about you Absolutely. So you can find my profile on bestselfinc.com. And you can also find a whole lot of other resources for uh, children, teens, parents, families, uh, blogs, and resources are all on our website. You can even subscribe to our family newsletter. And we often will send blogs through that updates, anything that we've written. I'll be sure to include all of that information in our, in our show notes too. So if, if you're listening, check out the show notes and you can uh, find it there too. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. I just, I loved every second of this conversation. I feel like I, I could have talked for a whole nother hour, but uh, maybe, maybe another day. Absolutely. Thank you both. This has been such a pleasure to, to join this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to be here. And that's our show for today. Thank you for joining me and taking time out of your day to listen. I really hope that you found something useful in today's episode. As Sherry said, it's so important to have these conversations about mental health, executive function challenges, and parenting support. The more we talk about these so-called stigmas, the more we normalize them. And by normalizing them, more and more people will be able to access the support they need without negative reactions from the people around them. And here at Focus Forward, we will continue to have these important and sometimes difficult conversations in the hopes that we help someone somewhere. If you are interested in normalizing these topics, please check out the show notes for some tips on how you can help. Oh, and hey, you can start off by sharing our podcast with your friends. If you haven't yet, subscribe to this podcast at beyondbooksmart.com slash podcast. You'll get an email about every episode with links to resources and tools we mention. Thanks for listening. 